Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus. Jesus. God's been so very good to us, has He not? Better than we deserve. Today we gather in His name, thankful that we have been invited to the feast, and thankful that He gave us hearts that would want to come. Amen? This should constantly be on our minds. God did not have to notice us. He didn't have to include us. And he didn't have to forgive us. It is because of his mercies that are new every morning. They are new this morning too. Amen? As we gather today, let us be mindful of his mercy and thankful for his grace. The psalmist sang of our great God and King in Psalm 145. So let us hear the word of the Lord as we hear the psalm. Psalm 145 says, I will extol thee, my God, O King. And I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day I will bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and they shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might and thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness, and shall sing of the righteousness. And the Lord is gracious, he is full of compassion, he is slow to anger, and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all of his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and the saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of the kingdom, and talk of thy power to make known the sons of men and his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all that fall and raises up those that be bowed down. The eyes that wait upon thee, thou givest them the meat in due season. Thou openest thine hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and holy in all of his works. The Lord is nigh unto them that call upon Him, and to them that call upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear Him, and He will hear their cry, and He will save them. The Lord preserveth all those that love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth shall speak of Thy praise, O Lord, and let 
all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen? Let us pray. Dear Lord, we are so thankful, Lord, for giving us another day, another beautiful day to gather together as your people in this building that you have blessed us with, Lord. Lord, to worship your name and to give thanks for all of your mighty deeds, including the mighty deeds you've done for us, Lord, forgiving our sins and giving us an inheritance as your children. Oh, what a mighty thing it is. Lord, I pray today that you would change us as we hear from you, that you would feed us from heaven, Lord, for our souls hunger and thirst after your righteousness, oh God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. for you my text from John chapter 18. My sermon today is called He That Hath an Ear. He That Hath an Ear. Very apropos, I think, for the subject of Malchus having his ear cut off. Um, John 18, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. And therefore, knowing all that should come upon him, Jesus went forth and said unto them, Who seek ye? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and they fell on the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of those which thou hast given me I have lost none then Simon Peter having a sword drew it and he smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear the servant's name was Malchus then said Jesus unto Peter put up thy sword into thy sheath the cup which my father hath given me shall I not drink it let us pray Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you for giving us your word. Your word is a never-ending depth of richness and beauty. And Lord, as we explore the meaning of this story, Lord, may our hearts be changed. May we see you more like you are than how we have imagined. And may we understand, Lord, that your love and mercy is boundless. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. He that hath an ear. Everybody say that with me. He that hath an ear. Now, this is one of those stories in the life of Jesus that is told in all four Gospels. And for this reason, we can't just walk by it and not try to understand 
why it was told, right? Now, God made sure that it was there. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story, but they don't tell us who it was that cut the ear off. But John does in our text. It doesn't say whose ear got cut off or who cut the ear off. Now, might be a reason because when Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written, Peter was still alive. But in John, he had most assuredly been put to death already. Now, not only does he tell us that it was Peter who cut off the ear, he tells us the name of the high priest's servant, and his name was Malchus. Everybody say Malchus. That's not really a name most of us know. Malchus. It's M-A-L-C-H-U-S. Malchus. Two writers point out uh, very specifically that it wasn't just his ear that cut off, but it was his it was right ear. Uh, there are some interesting things uh, in that as well. He's a servant, and um, a servant, when he gets set free, uh, he does something with his right ear, and this man is a servant. But we're not going to get into that. that. We don't know. That would be conjecture. But there's always a great deal of symbolism in every detail that the Scripture provides. Amen? If it says a man's right ear gets cut off, we should be looking into what's the difference. Why would, why would it matter? Because really in such a, such a cataclysmic moment in time, would it really matter which ear that it was that got cut off? I wouldn't think so. Uh, but it mentions the right ear. You can look at it. Maybe I'll do a podcast on why it might have been the right ear of Malchus that was cut off. Now Luke, however, includes part of the story that none of the other three do. Luke tells us that not only did a right ear get cut off, but he tells him that Jesus healed the man whose ear got cut off. Now, we don't know if Jesus left the ear laying on the ground and touched him and a new ear grew, or that he picked up the ear and he put it on. It doesn't really say. It says that he touched him and that he healed him. So we don't know. Wouldn't it have been an amazing thing had he left the other ear there and touched him and a new one grew back and the guy walked around he's like, he that hath an ear. I, I have one right here. Check this out. You know, in fact, this is my ear. Uh, I don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us. So that's not the most important factor in the story. But all four accounts tell us that the man whose ear got cut off was a bondservant and that he was the servant of the high priest Caiaphas. Everybody say Caiaphas. You can read in all four accounts starting in Matthew 26... Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18. All four accounts talk about this and give us quite a bit of detail about this story. Now, at first glance, it seems rather random and somewhat pointless. I, I remember as I was reading it, I was going to be preaching about the, the denial of Peter. But I, so as I was reading about the denial of Peter, the way that I go about it is I will go and I will get the whole passage from Matthew, the whole passage from Mark, the whole passage from Luke and John. And I put them side by side and I say, what new information am I getting from each gospel so that I make them all into one story? That's what I do. So as I kept doing that, Steve, you know what was happening? This whole Malchus story kept coming up. I'm like, man, it's in all of them. I'm like, okay, he got his ear cut off. Oh, here's his name. And oh, okay, it's his right ear. And and Jesus healed it. And, and, and then as I was reading about the denial of, of Peter later on, there's a relative of Malchus who, if you remember this, he comes up to uh, Peter, if you remember, he comes up to Peter and he says, weren't you in the garden? I saw you because I'm a relative of Malchus. And I saw you cut his ear off. 
And Peter says, it's not, it wasn't me. And I'm like, this is being mentioned. This is, this is so much a part of the story that perhaps there's some significance. And I, I had already told Andrea I was preaching about the denial of Peter, and I had to come back and go, I'm, I'm not preaching about the denial of Peter. I'm preaching about Malchus's ear. So let's dive into it for just a moment here and uh, hang with me. And I really think that what, uh, what can be derived from this will be something you will remember and uh, it will touch you in a deep way. I really, I really think that it will. So he that hath an ear, let him hear what God would say to us from the story of Malchus, Peter, and Christ's betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. So to, let me stage this event for you. Remember from last week that Jesus had left Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, I've been very, very wrapped up in the geography of the Holy Land for quite a while. You guys know I talk about it, right? You know, where this was and where that was. And, and Jerusalem is on a mountain. If you, if you come from where they entered into the Promised Land in Jericho, it's really low, okay? And when they go from Jericho, they go up, 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 up for like 14 miles, up, 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 up to Jerusalem. And so it's a great real picture of what God is doing. He's taking them from the very beginnings and he's ascending them into the heights, okay? And so Jerusalem, the holy city. Well, Jerusalem is on a mountain. Now this mountain is not a giant mountain. Like when you say mountain, you would not even think of it really as a mountain. Uh, it's very large in the fact that it's wide, and it, but it's only about 2,500 feet to 3,000 feet at the most high. It's not a giant mountain. Like in Myanmar, when we're there, those mountains are 9,000, 10,000, 12,000. Those are mountain mountains. But when you think of the Mount of Olives and when you think of Mount Zion, in your mind you may think of a very high mountain, but it's really not. You could walk, you could stand at the base of it and you could walk to the top of it. It's, it's only, it's less than a mile just walking up. And it, that's high, but that's not like a 12,000 foot mountain, okay? So, Jesus had been on the top of the mountain, Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, and he had left, and he walked down to the bottom of this mountain, and in between Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives is a brook called Kidron, the Kidron Valley. And he goes over the book of Kidron, and he goes right at the base of this mountain into a garden, a garden perhaps of a friend of his, someone that he had known, because it says he will oftentimes was known to go to this garden. And as we learned last week, this garden at the base of the Mount of Olives was called Gethsemane. And what does Gethsemane mean? It means olive press. We learned how Jesus had been in the press of temptation there in the garden. And we learned that in the garden he agonized in sorrow and temptation while the disciples slept for their own sorrow. And there the angels ministered to Jesus, giving him strength after he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, experiencing the deep felt stress, knowing in only hours he was going to be crucified. He would be forsaken of the Father and that he would have the sins of the world placed upon him. He returned to his sleeping disciples, resigned to do the will of his father, and he told them to rise that his betrayer was at hand. Jesus was in the most difficult moments of his life. He was covered in the blood that had come out through his sweat glands. He had been agonizing in prayer only to come and find that his disciples were asleep. 
He knew that Judas was coming and that it was his hour to be betrayed. And so all this is happening at this moment. This is Jesus' worst day. Jesus' worst moments of his life as he's coming to be crucified. Judas came in the garden to make things worse. He who had been with him and walked with him and he who had loved him. He, Jesus had treated him with love and kindness and he was even there at the Last Supper. He had been with him through all of his miracles and so he was knowing he was going to be betrayed by a friend. Can you imagine this? Could you imagine someone that you love in this congregation, someone that you're very close to, and in walks Luke or in walks Laura, and you know they're there to betray you to your death, and you would just be like, and there he was. Not only did he come into the garden, but he came in and he kissed Jesus. Wouldn't that have been even more painful? Luke, I know you love me, and come up and give me a hug and give me a kiss on the cheek. And it would be so bittersweet because I love you, but at the same time I know that you, your heart has been filled by Satan and you're there to betray me. This is rough. And this is what Jesus is experiencing right at this moment. With Judas is a mob of men. And if you read all of the accounts, it says there were lanterns, there were torches, there were swords, there were staves, and there were even other weapons. You know, as I began to think of this, I began thinking, guys carrying fire, guys carrying lanterns, people with pitchforks, people with, you know, I'm starting to see what? What are you starting to see? There's a, there's a movie like this. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is like this. The mob, the mob gathers and they, get, they have torches in their hands and they have swords and they have pitchforks and they're coming and they have fire and they're coming to get this monster, right? And that's exactly what this was like. Remember he told them, he says, wasn't I daily in the temple? But you come at night with weapons and a mob with swords and stabs and weapons and torches they were filled with terror themselves. The mob with all of the weapons, they were scared too. Because you know what happens when Jesus speaks to them and says, I am He? The Bible says they went back and they fell on the ground. You see, they thought of Jesus like a monster. They knew He had risen Lazarus from the dead. They saw it, remember? They knew he had healed people. They knew he was doing mighty things. They knew he, like a ghost, could walk on water and through walls sometimes. When they had come to try to kill him, he would disappear like a spirit. They had experienced this. And instead of seeing it the way his followers saw it, they saw it, they were terrified by this whole experience. This was very, very frightening for them. And so when he says, whom seek ye, he said, I am he. And they just fell back. Oh on the ground. Can you picture it? This mob with swords and stabs and torches, they fall on the ground in sheer terror when he says, I am he. Some people say it was supernatural that he, uh, he did some kind of a supernatural thing that made them all fall down. I don't think so. Because Jesus is not resisting these men at all, is he? He's like, I'm right here. I'm he. I'm the one you want. You don't want these guys. You just want me. He was anything but a monster. He was their savior, but they were afraid of him. 
They did not have ears to hear. They did not have eyes to see. Steve, don't you wish you could have been there with him in the garden? You would have seen the, the great drops of blood that he sweat as beautiful because you knew he was agonizing for your sins and the suffering that was going to come to him. Don't you wish, Becky, that you had seen him that day, that you could have been like Mary and offered that to him and seen it for the beauty that it was. But even there, we read from the Scriptures as they were doing these beautiful things for him at the home of Lazarus who had clearly raised from the dead four days after he was dead. They saw Mary put the ointment on him. They saw Mary wipe his feet with her hair. And they had seen it in a way that you wouldn't see it. You would see it as such a lovely thing. What a beautiful thing. But there, they saw it as strange and bizarre and unnecessary. Here they were, a heavily armed band of men from the chief priests, from the Pharisees, and from Caiaphas, the high priest himself, outnumbering this very small band that was with Jesus. They had tried to take him time and time again, but it wasn't his time. They tried to stone him in Nazareth, and he, they, took, they drove him up to the edge of the cliff, and then he was gone. They had tried to get him, and they would look, and they're like, where did he go? But now he wasn't running, he wasn't disappearing, he was offering himself. They did not take him. He offered himself. He didn't run. He did not disappear into the night. He knew this was the hour of darkness and he knew the night would take him. He was determined to be taken, but he wanted to be taken alone. He would lose none of those that the Father had given him, save Judas who was meant to betray him from the very beginning. In his own words from John chapter 10, if anyone doubts that this is true, he says in John 10, 17, No one could take my life, but I lay it down, that I might take it again. No man take it from me, but I lay it down myself. I had the power to lay it down, and I had the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. The Father had already told Jesus that he had this power, and I'm sure that in his moment of temptation, that was what was frightening him. He had the power. He was going to have to willingly offer himself. He had the power to stop them. But he didn't. Remember last weekend when I was talking about temptation, that Jesus had temptations that we don't? If he wanted to flatten them all to the ground, if he had wanted to do anything to them, he could have done it but he didn't. Jesus knew this was coming. This was the purpose of his life. Satan offered him another way as he tempted him in the wilderness and Satan used Peter to try to get him not to go to the cross and finally his own flesh battled him in his final hours and it may have even been that the, Satan was using Peter again. But now the time had come when he was ready to face it. He was ready 
but his disciples, they weren't. Peter still not fully understanding what was going on, or one of the disciples, they, they asked the question, should we smite them with the sword? Remember, Jesus had told them that they would need a sword. Remember this? This is right. This is, this is in the moments right before. They said, do you, do you guys have a sword? And they're like, we've only got two. He said, that'll be enough. Remember this? He had just told them. So it wasn't like they were crazy. It wasn't like they were wrong even for having the sword. It's not like it's even wrong to want to save Jesus whom they love. There's nothing wrong with that except it wasn't the will of God. Steve, if you had a sword and the enemy came to get me, I hope you'd pull it out. I hope you'd fight him. I think you might. And you know what? That'd be all right. But it wasn't right then because Jesus had been explaining to them. What had, what had he been telling him over and over? I'm getting ready to die. I'm getting ready to go to be crucified. I'm getting ready to go and I'm going to die, but God's going to raise me from the dead. You need to get ready for this. I'm getting ready to go. I'm getting ready to go to the Father. I'm getting ready to be crucified. And I know this is going to be hard for you. And he told them over and over and over, but they did not have, didn't have ears to hear. They didn't know they didn't need their swords in the garden. Even before Jesus could answer, none of the Gospels records Jesus making an answer to the question, should we smite him with the sword? Before the question could be answered by Jesus, because if Peter had waited long enough, for Jesus to answer the question, Jesus does answer the question later. But perhaps what happens next obviously was in God's will. And so he didn't answer them. Peter pulls out his sword in violence against the servants of the high priest who had sent the man. And we're not exactly sure how it happened, but imagine, Jacob, if it were you, how in the world could you cut a guy's ear off? Either he was going striking down at him, which would be trying to kill him, right? Or he was striking this way, and the man ducks like this, and his ear comes off. Either way you put it, Peter wasn't playing around. He wasn't aiming for his leg. He wasn't, he wasn't just swishing it about. This was a death blow, one way or the other, straight down or to the side. That's what it was. More likely to me, it was a swipe to the side because the ear came completely off. If you were going to try to cut an ear off, you'd have to stop, and the, and, and the sword would go down into here and it would break your collarbone and cut into your shoulder it would be a horrible wound but the ear is severed completely off and it falls to the ground at which Jesus says at this moment in Luke chapter 22 Jesus says these words he says no more of this stop and then he begins to rebuke Peter sternly. And he says, put up your sword. Put it in its sheath. For they that live by the sword will die by the sword. Was it Peter's time to die? No. Don't you think, don't you understand that I could pray right now to my father and that he would give me 12 legions of angels. But if I did that, then how could the scriptures be fulfilled? How could everything I'm telling you come to pass? That I'm going to be taken and killed. This cup that my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Remember when Jesus asked the same question in John chapter 12? 
On Palm Sunday when the Greeks followed after him, what? Shall I pray, Father, to save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. He knew this hour was coming and now it was here. It was not time to save Jesus. Jesus had told them again and again that he was on his way to death and they would not hear it. His rebuke was not so much a reproach against Peter's violence as it was Peter standing in the way of the will of God. You understand that? Sometimes it is the will of God even to not do things that you would normally do. They had been told. There have been times in my life God has prohibited me from doing certain things that are normal to be done. But you can't do it. Why? Because God says not to. That's why. Not only the will of God for Jesus, but it was the will of God for himself. Cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant would certainly mean jail or death for Peter. And if Peter had succeeded in protecting our Lord single-handedly, I mean, this gives us a little... I mean, there's a whole mob of people filled with weapons and torches. And Peter, it doesn't say anybody else started swinging. It was Peter. This makes me love him. He's like, come on! <laughs> right? Because what did Peter say? Everybody's going to die. I'm not going to forsake you. They might all die. They may all give up. Not me. I'm going to die with you. And that's what Peter wanted to do. He loved Jesus. He's like, come on! I'll take you all on. I mean, could you imagine them looking at him? They're kind of like, he's crazy. Like, we're all, we're going to kill him. And Jesus is like, no more. Stop, stop, stop. Not here, not now. Not while Jesus was offering himself in a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Learning to know the will of God and surrender to it is something that we all need to learn. Peter was learning us this day the hard way. And in a sense, it was the beginning of, of the denial of Peter. His actions denied what Jesus had told them was God's will. This is my last supper. He said, I'm going to be betrayed and killed, but I will come back from the dead. Yet in the middle of all of this, on the way to save the world, he saves all his disciples from certain death. And he heals the ear of Malchus kind of hard to charge a guy with cutting off another man's ear if he still has it right oh but look at all the blood all over me oh well where's the wound well there isn't one oh i mean could you imagine going to that trial jeff uh we would like to charge peter today with the cutting off of the high priest's servant's ear all right let's see the man like, like, look, we got, we got the sword. We got the murder weapon here. The attempted murder weapon. It's got blood on it. We got clothes with blood. All right, let me see. Wait. He's not injured. Yeah, I know, but you, you, that's a little hard to explain. In fact, we have the ear. Oh, really? Really? Could you imagine this? Now, since all four Gospels mention this part of the story, what significance could it have for us today? So... Let's go a little bit deeper and explore it together. You guys ready to stay with me for a little bit? Now first let's look at Malchus. You know, he was the bondservant of Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel. He was the highest religious leader of the Jewish people. Now, you know, I, I know the Bible. I love the Bible. Caiaphas comes up in my mind, but I don't really think of Caiaphas as who he was until now. This, this story has solidified who Caiaphas is in a way that it could not. Caiaphas 
was the high priest, and the high priest before him was his father-in-law, Annas, right? We hear about Annas the high priest. Jesus is taken to Annas before he's taken to Caiaphas, right? Annas the high priest, and they say, they say, call him the high priest too, just like if the president of the United States. After he's president, what do you still call him? Mr. President. So Annas the high priest is his father-in-law, and Caiaphas marries his daughter. And so Annas the high priest and Caiaphas' daughter, and Caiaphas had five sons. These people were the face of the Jewish people for the whole time of the life of Jesus all the way up until the destruction of Jerusalem because Caiaphas lives on. He lives on to confront Peter and John at the gate. Remember when they healed a man that goes leaping and jumping? Who, who does it that comes and, and holds a trial on him? Caiaphas does. And, and Annas the high priest. There they are. And they're, they're there to get him. They're there to get Peter and John. And they're like, hey, what, what are we supposed to do? Everybody knows this guy's been... Uh, everybody knows this guy's been lame for 50 years or whatever. What are we going to do? And they're like, we can't do anything unless we get in trouble, right? Caiaphas is also the one, if you remember, uh, Saul of Tarsus goes to the high priest. Who would that be? That would be Caiaphas. And he gets letters that he can hail men and women and throw them into jail and have them put to death who are Christians. And so he lives on. And he is the face of the Jewish religion and of Judaism, period. Caiaphas is super wealthy. When Jesus is blasting the wealthy, many scholars say that what they meant was Caiaphas and Annas and his five sons. That they were known, if you would say the wealthy, that's who they meant. That every time Jesus took a blast at the wealthy, it was this family. They had, uh, and Annas the high priest had a palace. Caiaphas had a palace. And their five sons had palaces. And they had made themselves rich from the temple and from the worship of the holy God of heaven. And God didn't like this. And so this family, and Caiaphas in particular, if there is an arch nemesis in the Bible, if there was one person that was going to be a villain in the story of Jesus, it's Caiaphas. He hates Jesus, and he wants to kill him. In John 11 and 12, as we read when we began our service, at, at our reading from John 11 and 12, we learn of Caiaphas' plot not only to kill Jesus, but who? Lazarus. Kill Lazarus. Why? Well, you've got to get rid of the evidence, right? So let's get rid of the man that was risen from the dead and kill him and kill Jesus and wipe it out. The problem here was with what was happening to the high priest is there was no way to get rid of the evidence. He has this servant whose ear is back and people saw it happen and put on. And unless they cut his ear off again, the evidence could not be gotten rid of. When the Bible says to Jews, as I said, God's people, his own, rejected him and killed him, it was really Caiaphas personally who is the actor. He is the actual man who brought about the crucifixion. If it were one man that could be responsible for this action in the New Testament, it's Caiaphas. Do you, have you really thought of it that way? I haven't, but it is, absolutely is. You can't. You, if you go through the scripture, if you look at it, this is the man. Let's kill Jesus. Let's kill Jesus. Let's kill Jesus. He was the leader. 
Josephus, the historian who was not even a Christian, wrote about this man and wrote about his name and his position and his power. Caiaphas had felt threatened by Jesus and felt that the safety of the nation was threatened by the unrest that Jesus was creating. He liked a nation that was calm and easy to control and so many multitudes were overthrowing the status quo that Jesus had to be stopped. I'll quickly go through a few of these uh, things here in John 11 to get the feel for his fear. Christ had performed the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead and dead and decomposing and still John 11:45. many of the Jews that came to Mary and seen the thing Jesus did believe this is bad. Everybody say this is bad. It's bad for Caiaphas. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? I mean, you'd think they'd gather together and go, a man was raised from the dead after four days. We should maybe believe in him, but they didn't. Because they didn't have what? And have an ear to hear. 1148, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe on him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Our palaces, our importance, our wealth is all threatened here. We've got to do something about this. 1149, and one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not for the whole nation should perish. What's amazing is I'm, I'm not, I've, I've looked into this before, and it seems as though that Caiaphas even had, because of his place that God had given him, God had given him a picture that this man was to die for their nation. He saw that. God had even told him this as high priest, but yet still. John eleven fifty one. 51, now this, this he did not say in his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but also he would gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Caiaphas was even given God's word to know that he was the Messiah, and yet he still didn't have an ear to hear. Because you know what it says in the next verse? From that day on, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, it says in verse 54, but he went in the wilderness. 55, we, we just read it at the Passover. Many Jews from around the country went there to purify themselves and they were, they're waiting around for Jesus. They're thinking he's not coming. Verse 57, the, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that we might seize him. Can you see what's going on? This is what's going on. Dealing with Jesus was one way to solve the problem. If that wasn't enough, they had to get rid of the evidence. Lazarus is still alive telling everyone. <laughs> I was dead for four days. I smelled. I was wearing grave clothes. They rolled a rock away. Everyone saw it. They were all gathered around and I, I came up from the dead when he called my name. He's the resurrection and the life. And I'm telling you, it would be hard to, to, to put that down. John 12, 9, now many of the, of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake, 
but that they might see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests, everybody say, but the chief priests. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Why did they do it? Because they did not have, they didn't have ears to hear. Again, Malchus was a bondservant. You know, Malchus means king. Isn't this amazing? Malchus was a bondservant of Caiaphas, and some of the relatives are even part of the motley uh, crew that torched bearing, sword-bearing guys that came to the garden. We know this, as I said, because later Peter is denying that he knows them. So it wasn't just Malchus. It was him and his relatives. They, they wanted to kill Jesus. They hated him. I read one commentator saying he probably was the eyes and ears of Caiaphas. He went everywhere. He was always trying to get information. He was kind of like the KGB spy, like, where is Jesus? Let's figure it out. He was the guy who acted on behalf of Caiaphas. He was probably a very malevolent character himself. Interestingly enough, as I said, his names mean king. So when Peter struck him, perhaps the allegory being set up here for us was that Peter was striking a blow against the king against the plan of God. Perhaps his ear represented the fact that they did not have ears to hear, as I've been saying over and over. That no matter what miracles they saw or heard testified to, like the resurrection of Lazarus, they would not hear. They did not have ears to hear. Even if Jesus healed this man by putting either his ear back on or leaving it on the ground and causing a new one to grow, they still would not hear. It's a testimony for the hardness of their hearts that the healing of Malchus' ear did not change his heart nor the heart of the high priest who knew him so well or even the relative that denies Peter. If he saw the ear cut off and the one who struck the blow, he would have likely seen it healed or known that it was being healed. Yet with all of that, he still did not have ears to hear. Miracles are a great witness of the fact that Jesus had come in the flesh as God the Messiah, but even witnessing those miracles was not enough to give a man faith. His heart would have to be touched and enlivened by the power of God. God would have to give him ears to hear before he could be saved. He that hath an ear. But there's a little bit more. You guys ready to stay with me? Because I like this stuff here. There's more to show us how truly loving and kind and merciful Jesus was. How, like His Father who numbers the hairs on our head, who notices that every sparrow falls to the ground and feeds the hungry beast and clothes the lilies, He showed His compassion again and again on those who did not deserve it. In fact, I'm going to show you six ways. Number one, He healed an enemy. Christ continues to show mercy on the enemies of the cross. Malchus was among those that came to arrest Jesus. He was one of those who Satan was moving to murder Jesus. In Luke 22, Christ points out their unfairness and He says, Have you come out against Me as a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize Me then, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Malchus represented the power of of darkness. He represented the minions of darkness, those nasty imps that follow after Satan doing his will. And yet Christ's mercy 
still reached him. This should be an encouragement to us. One of the very ones who would bind his hands and lead him like a lamb to the slaughter. You know what Jesus did? He touched him. It's an amazing thing to me that the very last miracle that Jesus did on this earth was to touch his enemy. What does the Bible say? We are to love our enemies and we're to pray for them. And that is just what Jesus did in this hour, his worst hour on earth. He stops in the middle of it all. When there, he could have done a lot of things. Why, why would he do this? Jesus did not harbor bitterness in his heart, even on the cross. He cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. One of those that knew not what they were doing that day was Malchus. But think of what it took for Jesus to do this. He's overwhelmed with the thought of his father forsaking him. The sins of his people being laid upon him. The physical afflictions and the spiritual afflictions that he would receive. And he cried out with strong cries. He sweat drops in blood. And he knew that the millions of demons from around the world would converge upon him. To try to undo all that he had done. To make him give up. He was preoccupied with his own sufferings. But not too preoccupied to think about the small pain of Malchus. It was really a small thing. It was just an ear. Malchus deserved far worse. Yet in the midst of all of that, Jesus healed him. Doesn't it make you think of, of what God has done for you? When you're tempted to give up on people because of their wicked rebellion against Christ and their hardness of heart, think of what Christ did for this man. Don't be too quick to send your enemies to hell. Or when you're tempted to treat harshly someone who has hurt you, Think of how Christ returned good for the evil that was given him. And on the other hand, when you're tempted to think that you are too great a sinner to be saved or as a Christian too great a sinner to be given, forgiven, think of Christ's dealings with this man. Christ's forgiveness is not based upon how good we are. It's based on how merciful and gracious he is. And apart from Christ, we are all enemies of God who would crucify to ourselves the Son of God afresh every day and put Him to an open shame. But Christ came to call sinners to repentance. Aren't you thankful for that today? And for that we can praise and adore Him. Ephesians says that all of us were enemies before He saved us. So that's our first point. He healed an enemy and it shows His purpose for coming to earth was to save enemies and extend a scepter of mercy even toward them. Never give up on the enemies of the cross in this nation. You know, I was asking for prayer the other day and Val remembered. He said, pray for that woman at the abortion mill. Pray for Michelle. I'm so glad Val didn't forget her. Wouldn't it be something if God could touch the heart of this evil minion of darkness who shows up every time the doors are open practically and goes there and tries to get people to take the lives of their babies? Second, Jesus healed a bond slave. He continues to be interested in the insignificant people who are in bondage. In verse 10 it says that Peter struck the high priest servant. The word for servant literally means slave. And yet a slave was important to Jesus. Even the slave of his mortal enemy was important to him. There's no person who is so insignificant that Jesus will overlook him. That he came to call the base things of this world and the things which are despised. Don't you feel insignificant sometimes, unimportant? 
I've heard people say, I feel like I'm a nobody. I, I can't talk. I'm old. I, I've wasted so much of my life. I have nothing to contribute. Well, how significant do you think this slave was in the eyes of other people? Certainly the fact that he represented Caiaphas made him important, but apart from Caiaphas, he was nothing. In the same way, we don't have much significance apart from Christ. It's not self-esteem that should drive us, but the esteem of God. We have esteem because of him. And once Malchus was saved, some people believe he was saved because in the other versions, I don't know, the history doesn't tell us. I don't know if he was or he wasn't. But in the other versions, he doesn't give it a name. But he goes from being a slave, just some guy, to being Malchus, a man with a name. I don't know if he was saved or he wasn't, but in John's Gospel, he is given a name. Prior to that, he was insignificant. He was significant enough that Jesus healed his ear. How significant do you think the thieves of the cross were? To the Jews, not very, but Jesus said to one of them that day, right? Today, you will be with me in paradise. You know, we are all bond slaves to sin. The Bible tells us to Satan and to the world system without Jesus. There's no escape from the slavery without Jesus. He came to heal slaves and he came to free slaves from their misery. And if you are a slave today of pornography or alcohol, pride, food, you can rest assured that Jesus cares about all of you. Thirdly, he healed an ear. Continues to be interested in insignificant concerns to heal the small things. The Bible says we're to cast all of our cares on him. Jesus did not say it's only an ear. I've got more important things to worry about. He does not ignore small wounds. In fact, he was about to be wounded for our transgressions and bore in our bodies even the smallest of wounds. We have a wonderful Savior. He calls us to cast our cares upon him, even in this. Number four, and this is a little bit rough, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot. He healed Malchus knowing full well the pain that he would suffer at the hands of Malchus. He knew the sins that Malchus was going to inflict upon him personally. And still yet, he did it. You know, Jeff, when God called you, he knew the sins you're going to commit next year. And the next year. And the next year. And you know what he says? You're mine. You're forgiven. You're loved. You're seated in heavenly places with me right now. Oh, this is an amazing thing. Christ healed Malchus knowing full well what he would do. Verse 4 says, Jesus therefore, knowing all that would come upon him. That's a significant phrase. Knowing all that would come upon him. He went forward and he said to them, Whom are you seeking? In similar circumstances, knowing the abuse and the suffering, the anguish that would soon be facing at their hands, would you have thought about healing Malchus? Would you have stopped in the middle of all this as you were being drugged to the cross? You'd be so caught up in that, you wouldn't think to stop and touch Malchus. But that's the heart and character of God. All of us, apart from grace, would crucify the Son. And if you don't believe it, read Hebrews because that's what it says. That we will willingly crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. That's what we do when we sin. 
Yet knowing full well the state of his natural heart, Christ opened our ears to hear the gospel and brought healing to our soul. He continues to forgive us, knowing full well that we will sin against him in the future. It just blows our minds when we realize that he knows all of our future sins, yet continues to show us grace. Fifth, and I'm wrapping up, guys. He healed someone he had the power to destroy. The fact that God does not destroy notorious criminals and tyrannical empires is not evidence of his lack of power, but of his enormous patience and mercy. Look at verse 6, John 18, 6. When he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. They were terrified of him. They knew he had great power, and he did, and he could have at any moment killed every single one of them. When Peter drew his sword, Matthew records these words, Do you not think that I can pray my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? Malchus was a man who deserved to be destroyed by Christ, but what did he do instead, guys? He healed him. That's what God does for us every single day. What enormous self-control Jesus showed in holding back those 12 legions of angels. I'm sure those angels were wanting to do something too. We have a world filled with men like Malchus and this crowd. The fact that he does not wipe them off the face of the earth is no lack of his power. If you read the Psalms, you know, what, you know what David's always crying about? Lord, why don't you kill all these people? <laughs> why, do, why do they seem to live in prosperity? Why do they seem to do so well? Sometimes we get like that too. And when we pray for our city, we're going to the one who showed patience back then. Remember, Jonah didn't want to go. He didn't want to go and preach because he said, what? God's going to forgive him. And he's not going to wipe him off the face of the earth because that's the way God is. And sometimes we can be filled with hatred towards the world. And Jesus loved them. While, God, while we can marvel that God has not destroyed America as he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, let us glory in the fact that he glories in his mercy. We might well wonder why God allows persecution in the church, in China, and all over the world. We know for sure that it's not to demonstrate his lack of power. Right? Finally, and I'll conclude with this. Jesus left a testimony in the hour of darkness. No time is too dark that Jesus will ignore and not show mercy. Jesus healed a man during his great hour of darkness that had come to the world. But as he says in Luke 22, this is your hour and the power of darkness. If Jesus could heal during the world's worst hours of darkness, if he could care for a thief on a cross who had only moments before he had been mocking him, if he could be thinking of his mother's welfare while burning in pain on the cross, then surely you can trust him to care for you during your very difficult times. Amen? The healing of Malchus to me shows how selfless Christ's love was, but it also shows to me that it doesn't matter how dark the world might be, Christ is the light of the world, and he can handle it. Amen? It doesn't matter what conspiracies the world may bring. Christ was in full control during that conspiracy. And he continues to be in control today. It doesn't matter how resistant to the gospel people may be and how far from the witness of the gospel they may be. Christ knows how to bring 
the silent but powerful witness of an ear of Malchus. Praise him that he will not leave himself without a witness. Maybe you'll be that witness. Maybe you'll be that witness. He that hath an ear, let him hear what God would say to us from the story of Malchus. Let us pray. Lord, you're so much better to us than we deserve. We're so insignificant like this ear, like this servant. Lord, you could have just destroyed us, but instead you've loved us. You've called us. You've forgiven us. You've healed us. And you've given us ears to hear. Oh God, may we be truly thankful today. May we be merciful to others and kind to them and even offer to relieve their afflictions. May we pray for our enemies and love them and do good unto them that despitefully use us as you have and be like that. Be like you were on this day in the garden. In Christ's name we pray. And all the church said, Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.